I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Conventional wisdom and a healthy helping of gerrymandering says the upcoming midterm elections are supposed to be a boon for Republicans. The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade has upended that conventional wisdom, but my guest argues that that conventional wisdom ignores a major factor, race. Steve Phillips first came to the podcast in 2018 with his New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. Today, he's out with a new book, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. As Phillips explains in this conversation first recorded for Washington Post Live on September 26th, the Confederates never stopped fighting. And Phillips explains what progressives need to do to win that fight. All right, before we dive deep into the book, let's just start at the 35,000-foot level. You argue that race is more central to politics today than ever before. Why? So the country's undergone a demographic revolution in that the country used to be 12% people of color in 1965 and is 40% today. So that has revolutionary implications for how politics is conducted, for electoral outcomes, for electoral strategy and uh, uh, results. And so historically, politics in this country has been a contest among white people. And so you had liberal whites competing with conservative whites to try to get the whites in the middle. And that's how politics functioned for centuries. And up until 65, when the Voting Rights Act was passed and the Immigration Reform uh, Act was passed under, under LBJ. And that transformed both the composition of the country and the composition of the electorate. And so now people of color are of a sizable enough population that people of color aligned with that liberal progressive white population are a majority of the people. And that's what I laid out in my first book, Brown is the New White. The election of a black president, the re-election of a black president, people of the vast majority of people of color, the meaningful minority of whites who are progressive was 51% in uh, 2016 and is growing today. But too few people look at elections through that lens. They still think it's a contest among white people. They discount the salience and significance of people of color in politics, despite the dramatic statistical relevance. Nearly 90% of black people vote Democratic uh, compared to 44% of whites. And that's a pretty strong data point, but does not get looked at by most people within politics. Okay, there are a couple of things I want to I want to touch on uh, from your answer. One, your your book Brown is the New White, as you well know, but also uh, folks who who have been reading me since then know that that book became a bible for me um, after it came out because of the the argument you were making. But the second part that I want to touch on in in your response there is um, the demographic changes in the country. One big mantra to come out of certainly the 2016 election, um, but also in elections since then, is that demography isn't destiny. So talk to people who think that simply because the nation is getting browner and blacker, that that automatically means that progressive candidates or democratic candidates are going to win elections. Well, fundamentally, it's a question of turnout. And so it's funny because people thought, say this thing a lot about, you know, demography isn't destiny and it's not, it can happen automatically. And I'm like, who actually says that and thinks that? 
I spend most of my time trying to argue with Democrats and progressives uh, to to see the significance of demography and to invest in it in a significant way. Joe Biden said on election night 2016, says we're heading Georgia. That's not one we expected. And the reason he didn't expect it because they didn't invest. And so if you don't invest in the demographic revolution, then it's not going to bring about electoral outcomes. But it's a very incontrovertible data point that Democrat that people of color are overwhelmingly progressive in terms of how they how they vote. I said 90% of African Americans every election since 1976 when they started tracking this in exit polls, roughly two-thirds of all people of color, sometimes up to three quarters, vote. Democratic and progressive, and which is not surprising in a country where the, the, the other party is predicated upon white racial resentment. So it really shouldn't be shocking people. But the failure to understand and invest and lean into and lift up the leaders and move resources to the groups trying to get people of color to the polls will result in the demography not transforming elections. But where you do do that as Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and New Georgia Project and others did in Georgia, you will win a state that the president-elect did not think he was going to win, and you will transform the entire United States Senate by winning those two Senate seats if you invest. And that's a fundamental argument that I've been trying to make these past several years. Right, and it's that investment because I, I was here scribbling myself a note because you know you make the point that overwhelmingly African-American voters and people of color will vote for progressive candidates, but then it becomes an issue of, well, sure, 90% of 1,000 people voting is big, but in some elections, it's 90% of 100 people exactly. voting in an election. So, so is it the investment in reaching out to those communities? Is that what makes the difference between 90 out of 100 versus 90 out of 1,000 showing up to vote on election day? Right. It's a combination of the dollars that go to the groups who are doing the voter mobilization work. And that in my new book, I lift up case studies of examples of groups who are doing the day-to-day nitty-gritty work of getting people of color to surmount the obstacles that are put in their way to actually cast ballots. So that's a part of it. Then there's also a question of having candidates who inspire and connect with and resonate with the constituency and the community that move people to actually turn out. And that's a lot of what you saw in 2018 with the Stacey Abrams' dramatic uh, voter uh, turnout increase, which you saw with Obama. And it's also public policies to the extent that you're going to fight for issues that the community cares about. And that's what I was actually quite pleasantly surprised to see about the Biden administration. Part of what moved them on the student debt relief is that they were actually saying, we have to offer something to young people and people of color to motivate them to see the significance of what we're actually doing. So it's all three those, the money, the message to the policy, and then the people uh, who we actually put forward as the leaders. That combination is what has historically produced the largest turnout that then results in winning elections. So I, I, I can imagine that uh, some people listening to this conversation uh, particularly black voters are probably thinking, yeah, well, turnout is one thing, but you've got all these voter restrictions out there and all these efforts to keep us from voting. Can all the, can black voters, can progressive organizations out-organize efforts to suppress the vote? Well, I mean, that's been the 
157 year challenge, right? I mean, after the end of the Civil War, and this is why I, I lay out in the uh, uh, my new book, I talk about this Confederate battle plan that is very consistent. And part of it is ruthlessly rewriting the laws to prevent people from participating. The majority of people in South Carolina and Mississippi after the Civil War were black. So, of course, they certainly could not have them vote. And so you had all of these things get created, grandfather clauses and all these different manipulations uh, to keep people from voting. But that's been the history of this country ever since then, fighting against that work. Martha King said, give us the ballot. We will transform the South. I see Jackson's campaigns came out of that effort, doubled the uh, turnout um, of people of color. So it's an ongoing fundamental struggle, which would be better served if the people at the top level of the party and the people who uh, spend the most money would invest in the groups and the people and the leaders and the work required to get people to overcome those obstacles. Um, I'm sitting here struggling where to where to go next in the questioning because there's so much there's so much here between the book um, and your new new majority index. So I'm gonna let's go to the new majority index, Steve. This is a, an index that you've developed, um, and I'm wondering how does it differ from other indices like the Cook Political Report or La Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, where you know those are the two um, the two uh, reports that people look at when they're trying to decide you know which races are the ones. Uh, to watch, or which way you know the midterm elections are going to go. Your index actually is well. One, talk about it, and then I'll ask you the, my follow-up question. So it goes to what I was saying originally that people have historically seen politics as a contest between white people, and so they have not focused on people of color. And so, again, from a simply a statistical standpoint, to be able to look at elections and not take race into account means that as a given, your analysis is thinner and less elaborate and less comprehensive. So Cook's report is good in terms of looking at pa presidential past results. They look at a congressional district, how did the Democrat and the Republican do in that congressional district, and how does that compare to the national average? And that gives you some sense of the relative partisan lean of that district. So that's useful. Um, uh, 538, for example, they just use uh, polling data, and that's largely the essence of what their analysis is. But neither of them look at racial data. And so that's what we do is we take the same data that Cook looks at in terms of presidential results, we add in racial data. What is the racial diversity of that district? And then what is the difference in voter turnout by racial group? And almost all of the districts, whites vote at a higher level than people of color, lots of reasons for that. But the failure to account for that when people of color are so overwhelmingly democratic in their voting preference leads your analysis to be less rigorous and less uh, uh, elaborate. And so that's the contribution that we've made is to build upon the same data set that Cook has used and add in a richer, fuller, more robust data set by looking at the racial demographics and then the racial participation rates by each racial group. So then uh, given what you just said, it seemed like everybody was surprised by the results out of the special the election in the 19th congressional district of New York. Given the given the new majority index, would you have been surprised by that by the result? 
well, no, I mean, that that's an interesting district. And it's interesting because it's also not fully reflected. And it's also quite interesting because, um, you know, Antonio Delgado represented an African-American man in an almost 90 percent white district. And so you already had a very interesting dynamic going on there um, in terms of uh, a black candidate doing better. But that's the other overarching piece around this over the, around the the midterm elections, right? Even after redistricting, the, all the ways that this, the seats have been carved up, Biden won the most votes in 226 of these seats, and so 218 is what you need for a majority. So then it becomes a question of turnout, and that's what gets lost in a lot of this analysis as well. People think that it's the same voters, and they're just flipping back and forth based upon inflation rates in the stock market and whatnot. But that's not what happens. It's a question of turnout. And so the New York 19 seat is a is a Biden seat. And so if those voters were to come back out in larger numbers, then it shouldn't be surprising at all. But that's, I think, on the other aspect. We're looking at race, but we're also looking at turnout, which is a very missing element of electoral analysis. Right. Turnout. Every, everything comes back, comes back to turnout. What I, I do want to talk about about issues and how that impacts turnout, how that impacts enthusiasm. Um, the latest Washington Post poll shows that 56% of registered voters surveyed trusted Republicans on the issue of crime. And that's the highest of all the issues listed. Meanwhile, there's a front page story in the Washington Post today, excuse me, on how, increase, uh, on how Republicans are increasingly centering their pitch to voters on crime, which has prompted accusations of racism from many Democrats in a fear that it might work. Is that fear justified? No, because people continue to feel like that whatever issue you're putting forward is going to cause this very fluid electorate to shift its allegiances back and forth. And that's not what's happening. And that does get to the fundamental point um, that I, it led me to write the second book, is that we are still engaged in a fundamental battle in this country over, is this going to be primarily a white country or is it going to be a multiracial democracy? And that's largely how elections play themselves out. And so what the, the failure of Democrats and progressives is to define the race in those terms and to challenge and summon people to a higher level of standing unapologetically for the fact that this isn't a multiracial nation, or at least should be. And so Biden's Philadelphia speech was a good step in that direction. Um, but it, it, that's the more, much more fundamental uh, dynamic in elections rather than an ad that's tweaking this particular issue. Because crime is, a whole, is just a, a, a code word for people of color and try, attempt to scare white people. And so the extent that we don't understand that that's the underlying reality of almost all of these elections. Our analysis and our strategies um, are not as uh, effective as they could be. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so then the, the, the president and the Democratic Party and candidates around the country talking about MAGA Republicans, ultra-MAGA Republicans, is 
if I heard your last answer right, is getting to that higher that higher issue about um, the democracy and freedom and who we are as a nation. Yes, in a lot of ways, it's probably, you know, Biden's, it's kind of that Nixon going to China thing. It's a person who can make that argument even more. I mean, Biden, uh, Obama couldn't even say that a distinguished black professor shouldn't be arrested in his own house. Right? You know, what happened with Skip Gates, right? So they have that whole beer summit, and he had to backtrack of all of that. So a white president can do a, a more forceful job of challenging white people to rise to their highest and best selves. And hopefully the, the, the advisors and the pollsters around him would see that that is in fact a winning and a majority strategy. And that's the, really the fundamental struggle um, that we're engaged in both writ large as well as within the progressive movement. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk more about, about your book, how, how We Win the Civil War. And what I find interesting about the title, Steve, is that it gives the impression that we're either currently in a new civil war or we're still fighting the one that ended ended in 1965 or or am i over interpreting this no that's exactly the point my fundamental point the whole first half of the book is an attempt to under have people appreciate the ferocity of the fight we are currently in because it is a direct continuation of the original civil war and so the whole first half of the book is I'm trying to explain that the Confederates have never stopped fighting. They Five days after supposedly surrendering at Appomattox, they shot the president in the back of the head and assassinated him. One day after uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth said, heard Lincoln's speech and said, that means N-word citizenship, that's the last speech he'll ever give. And so they have never stopped fighting from that point through overthrowing Reconstruction, uh, reinstating uh, legalized apartheid in this country all the way up till 1965, all the way up to storming the Capitol on January 6th, carrying the Confederate flag and wearing T-shirts saying MAGA Civil War. So when I say winning the Civil War, I mean the original one from 1860s, because <laughs> the folks who waged that have not stopped fighting. And so, you know, you, you open... Uh, the opening pages of your book are about January 6th. Um, take us back to, the, to that day and tell us how you were processing what was happening here in DC. Because I remember Michael Steele and I, the former chair of the RNC, we were doing a virtual event with the John Adams Society based in Amsterdam. And we were both watching, all, and the folks in Amsterdam were watching too, in real time folks run up the steps of the Capitol and we were all just sort of dumbfounded by what we were seeing. Absolutely, and we shouldn't forget that January 6th, I mean, it's not stupid to say it, but it was the day after January 5th, which was the day where the the literal uh, uh, heir to Martin Luther King Jr. was elected to the United States Senate. Raphael Warnock preaches from the pulpit where Dr. King preached. He was elected to the Senate and the next day, people carrying the Confederate flag stormed the Capitol to say, we are not going to stand for this. We are not going to have our country be like this. So I titled the intro to my uh, uh, book, the introductory chapter, A Choice Between Democracy and Whiteness. And that's a line that Taylor Branch, a historian who wrote uh, Parting the Waters, said to Isabel mm-hmm. White, uh, is- is- Isabel Wilkerson, uh, as they were talking about the rise of white domestic terrorism within the country and that how people were not going to stand for this diversification and the transformation that's not being a white country. And Taylor Branch posed the question, if people were given a choice between democracy and whiteness, 
how many would choose whiteness? And Wilkerson says, we let that hang in the air, neither of us willing to hazard a guess as to that one. And so on January 6th, you had people literally trying to stop democracy. And what I talk about in the book, the examples of chanting racist uh, 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 phrases at the police officers there, as I was saying, carrying the Confederate flag, wearing Civil War t-shirts, all to keep in power this man who's one of the, the proudest pro-white nationalist presidents that we've ever had. So we had a chance to choose between democracy and whiteness, and a whole lot of people did choose whiteness, and a whole lot of people still want the man who was the personification of that to lead this nation and to lead this nation and uh, and a whole Make America White Again movement that he's been championing. And, you know, we as a, a nation have been through these turbulent times before. I mean, a civil war was was fought. Um, you know, as you argue, it's still it's still going on. But now we're in a situation, at least in recent memory and modern times and in, in present day, what you're talking about is not only being led and run by a former president of the United States and was being led by a president of the United States when he was in the Oval Office, but he's being aided and abetted by a lot of people who technically know better, but because they have their own their own personal or political goals, turn the you know, turn a blind eye or don't speak up and push back against this. Is there any way for uh, the country to get past this moment, this very rough moment that we're in, without Republicans joining Democrats in their calls? on uh, leaders to pull the, the Republican Party and to pull the nation back from the brink? Well, it, 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 that's the moment that we're in. And we talk about this country being at an inflection point, right? And that, that there are these, uh, I forget who wrote this, and I apologize for not saying, but they, they, the, a lot of the conservatives and like the Republican writers were saying that don't take Trump literally, yeah. but take him seriously. And then they were saying on January 6th, those who took him literally, those who took him seriously, collided in the halls of the Capitol as those who took him literally came to hang Mike Pence. And so the others went, went fleeing for their lives. So uh, I just don't think fundamentally, and if you've looked throughout history, that that's where and how change comes from. Change comes from the people who are uh, bearing the brunt of the inequality and injustice, pushing to make society better and more just and more equal. Right. It wasn't there were sympathetic and supportive um, white Southerners in Montgomery, um, Alabama, but they didn't lead the fight. It took Rosa Parks, Montgomery Improvement Association and all of the organizers to organize a bus boycott that then others could support. And so it's a question of which comes first and what's the driving force. And that's one of the things that I talk about in my book. I say there's a liberation battle plan of the places that have actually transformed, Georgia and Arizona and Harris County, Texas, Virginia and San Diego. And one of the core elements is that there is a strong leader there. And then there's also a strong civic engagement organization that can transform the composition of that electorate. So to the extent that we can really bring actual multiracial democracy and then govern in the interest that improves people's lives, that's going to be the driving force. And then hopefully some of the more, you know, uh, uh, op open-minded Republicans will say, yeah, that's actually a good thing for us to 
passed the first climate change legislation in the history of this country. Um, two questions in the little bit of time that, that we have left. Um, one is more on this point. I've been making the, argu the, the argument that it doesn't matter whether Donald Trump runs for president uh, in 2024. Trumpism is abroad in the land and that you've got plenty of people who are you know, Governor DeSantis in Florida, Governor Abbott in Texas doing all sorts of things that are Trump-like and yet they could run for president and could possibly win. Um, how concerned should folks be that, or, or let me rephrase it, not how concerned folks should be. How, talk about how mindful people should be that they don't need Donald Trump Exactly. in order to carry out the policies that Donald Trump was trying to implement or was doing when he was president. Exactly. And the other part of that is that Trump was not powerful and Trump was not popular until he started championing whiteness and attacking people of color. He was at 4% in the polls and among Republicans in May of 2015 until he started calling Mexicans rapists um, and, and murderers. And then he zoomed up in the polls and was he took first place within a matter of weeks. And that's when he was all like, I could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and get away with it because he saw the power of whiteness. But he's not the first person to do that. And this has been the consistent theme. That's why I talk about the Civil War never ended, the modern day Confederates. George Wallace had a similar quote. He says, I, I, I used to talk about roads and bridges and schools and nobody listened. Then I started talking about the N-words and they stomped the floor. And this is what Trump has found. And then he went on to win 13% of the vote uh, uh, with in, in the 1968 presidential election. So this movement to define this country as a white nation literally goes back to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it continues up to this day. And if it's not Trump, somebody else will be championing that fight in 2024 and beyond. And, uh, and uh, um, George Wallace ran, got double-digit a percentage support, as you just said, but didn't win. And what Trump was able to do was to ride that wave of resentment into the Oval Office. Um, last question, um, and it made me think of this as you were talking before, I'm wondering the role of abortion and the Dobbs decision in how we should be looking uh, at the midterm elections and also whether that upends or changes in some way your new majority index? Has it had any kind of impact? Because you know the Dobbs decision was an earthquake, then the Kansas referendum vote was an earthquake, and we're seeing with poll, uh, um, voter registration numbers coming out of key states like Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania, the new registrants of women is going through the roof. Right. But part of it is it's that saying about first they came for this group and I said nothing and then they came for me. Right. So this country was created quite explicitly and unapologetically as a straight, white, male, Christian nation. And so anything who is not that has had to fight and struggle for equality. And then now we have these leaders who are trying to take us backwards in that direction. And so Dobbs is part of that uh, reality around trying to move us back towards a country fundamentally for straight white male Christians. As Clarence Thomas uh, 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 previewed, he's coming for the LGBTQ communities next in terms of where they, where they actually want to go. But what happened with Dobbs is they overstepped. And so they stepped over into, so I think, some of the, 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 the women 
who are, may not be as clear necessarily on all of the racial dynamics and issues themselves, but then they were coming for them. And that's a different piece. And people have responded in, the, in ways that have been surprising to many people in politics. And Kansas is a great example. Kansas is not on the cutting edge of the, of the, of the revolution and the rainbow coalition in this country. But clearly there was a backlash there. Steve Phillips, author of How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Thank you so much for coming back to Capehart. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.